You have to be an insatiable learner. You have to have an appetite to want to research and to learn things. It's no fun doing all the jobs that you don't want to do. And at first, it's probably 80% of the jobs. You're just grinding it out. You hate doing them, but you have to do them. So my number one piece of advice is make sure you can go the long road. And remember that you're taking everybody with you. You're taking your whole family with you. So if you're not committed, there's all kinds of repercussions if things fall apart financially or if you run out of steam. Building a startup after midlife is a commitment. That is a life-changing decision and we are taking our family along on the journey. Because we take our family along, we feel there are more responsibilities to make it happen and we don't give up easily. We have to dig deeper and really think about our purpose. How are we going to use our business as the vehicle to create a better world for our children? How can we use our business as the forces for good? And that's exactly what Leslie Bradford Scott did. She took her family on the journey and used her business to protect the history and the environment for future generations. The journey wasn't easy as she almost went out of business. If right now everything seems complicated and impossible because you don't have the profit you need to amplify your social mission, I don't want you to give up. This podcast series, Startup After Midlife, features women founders and CEOs who started their business after the midlife point and they continue to grow their business. Today's episode is the last episode of this podcast series. My guests share how they found the courage to start their business after midlife, the benefit of starting a business when you are older, the uncomfortable stage and the financial lessons along their journey. If you missed the first three episodes, you can go to christinashahli.com forward slash her CEO journey and start with episode 88, The Journey of Nita Tendon. My guest today is Leslie Bradford Scott. She is the founder of Walton Wood Farm in Ontario, Canada. Her business produces bed and body products that are free from harsh ingredients, vegetarian, vegan-friendly, and gluten-free. Through her business, Leslie is on a mission to help grow communities by bringing back jobs to the country, preserving history, and breathing new life into rural communities. You're listening to Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while and you are a regular listener, I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to balance between mission and profit, to create an impact in this world, and to achieve financial equality through your business. 
When Leslie started in 2014, she didn't think her business would grow so quickly to a seven-figure business, so the infrastructure wasn't ready to support the growth. If she could go back in time, she said she would have built the infrastructure as if her business is going to be a $10 million company because not having the right infrastructure to support her fast growth almost caused her to lose the company. And one of the infrastructures she needed was in the finance area. It is common for mission-driven women entrepreneurs to want to wait having a trusted advisor in the finance area. Because you may think it's enough to have a bookkeeper and tax accountant. Your business is small enough and you think you couldn't afford one. The fact of the matter is you couldn't afford not having a trusted advisor in finance, especially if your goal is using profit as a tool to amplify your social impact mission. And really, you don't need a full-time CFO, but you can afford to have an on-demand CFO. That's exactly what Leslie realized. She could afford an on-demand CFO and hiring one actually saved her business from bankruptcy. When her business grew quickly to seven figures, at the same time, it was losing money. But Leslie didn't understand why. Her bookkeeper wasn't able to explain it either. Not until an on-demand CFO came into the business, reviewed the back-end processes, put the puzzles together, and showed Leslie how to read her business financial numbers that she finally understood why her business was losing money. Not knowing how to read the story behind your financial numbers may stop you from achieving your purpose. If you have a bookkeeper, it's great and that is the foundation. You need to have one. At the same time, take note that bookkeeping is about the past. You cannot do anything about the past. But you can learn from the past and use the historical financial numbers to write the future story of your business. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that financial knowledge stops at bookkeeping and taxes because that's not true. By the way, just a reminder, after you listen to this episode and you realize you need help in reading the story behind your financial numbers, but you don't know where to start, let's chat and figure out how we can put the right infrastructure in place before you waste valuable resources. Book in a time to speak with me at christinashahli.com forward slash let's chat. Now, let's find out Leslie CEO journey. Leslie Bradford Scott, welcome to her CEO journey. Can you please share with my audience, what is your journey, Leslie? And what is Walton Wood Farm all about? Well, my husband and I found this neglected farm, 90 minutes east of Toronto, and it's 140 acres on Rice Lake. But it hadn't been properly farmed in about, mm, about 18 years. The historic buildings were all falling down. The barns, which were built in the 1850s, were dilapidated. My husband's a retired farmer. And he said, you know, if we take this place on, we have to figure out how we're going to save those barns because it's going to take a couple hundred thousand dollars and the farm income is never going to pay for it. So 
if we do it, we have to make that commitment because it's important that we preserve our agricultural history for future generations. We have an obligation to that generation to preserve as much as we can. So I said, okay, well, if we buy it, I can figure out a business that's non-agricultural. I can do that. Yes, let's do that, darling. (laughs) How did you figure out your product? Like what you want to do to help restoring this barn? I floundered around for about six months. I had a bunch of different ideas and they just weren't working out. And how am I solving a problem? You can't start a business without solving a problem, right? And then I thought, well, I was a single mom for many, many years. I was very stressed out, working seven days a week. All the burden was on me. And my escape was locking myself in the bathroom and taking a bath, putting on music, lighting some candles. And I would threaten my kids, like, if you touch that door, you are (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Do they still remember those? Oh my gosh, I did it all the time. That was my, if I was like going to have a breakdown, I would take a bath, put my warm pajamas on, I'd go to bed and I think tomorrow will be a better day. And that's how I got through it. Many, many years of doing that. So I thought, well, there's got to be a ton of women who are going through life the way I did. And what if I could give them something useful? What if I could put them in the bathtub, but also make them laugh? What if you could buy your girlfriend a gift who's having a hard time? But it was actually a useful thing. And she would get a chuckle. So I created the bath salt in my KitchenAid mixer. And I came up with really funny themes like bitch emergency and winner's a bitch and fix up anything and break up bath revenge. And, and I wrote these funny stories on the side of the bottles. And so they were colorful and eye-popping and they kind of jumped off the shelf. And then I made them five at a time. Uh, filled up my pickup truck and drove across Ontario knocking on stores. I basically hit all the cute little destination towns where people would go to gift shops. I would carry these 55 pound cases of bath salts, plunk them down on the counter, pull a couple out and just let them read the label and they would start laughing. So week from hell or bitch emergency and they would just sell for, and they'd say, how much are these? (laughs) If I could get the buyer in front of me, which I usually could, I had a, I had a sale. How did you even figure out how to mix all these ingredients to make your product? Oh, that was easy. I just bought a couple of organic body care products, like a DIY. And I basically started experimenting. I bought a bunch of essential oils and different kinds of salts and I would get in there and I would go, I would look up some recipes, but then I'd put, and then I think, no, I can do better than this. So I just improved on what I was researching. You drove around and then what did the store say? What did you do after that to scale it up? So from there, quite quickly, I found a distributor in uh, Northern Ontario who specialized in food. They had a booth at the Toronto gift show and they loved the product. So they basically became my Canadian distributor. And that, so I started the business June 14th and the Toronto gift show was in August. This is 2014, right? Right. So June, July, August. So three months later, my products at the Toronto gift show. And from there, that was it. It went right across Canada instantly. How did you even figure out the capacity? We turned a bedroom into a filling room and I bought a giant pastry mixer and I was making them now 25 bottles at a time. 
And pretty soon, the entire house was just a warehouse and a mixing station. It was unbelievable. The whole house was taken over and we outgrew it so fast because what happened was, you think it's easy, make a product, ship it. No. (laughs) You have to have ingredients showing up in transport trucks by the pallet. You can't do that if you have a residential, we have a you know, farm road, but it's still a residential area. We don't have an ability to have a loading dock here. So we needed to get out of here really fast. So the distributor set up a filling station in their warehouse, and I would just ship the buckets into them, and they would fill them and label them. But that didn't last long either. We had to get into a factory. So within say the first year I had to find a factory, but the biggest problem was nobody could label my bottle. We went with the glass milk bottle for sustainability, but we also wanted to tie that into the farm story because it was a wraparound label on a milk bottle with these curved edges. And so it took a long time. I almost went out of business because I couldn't find somebody to label the bottle. On your website, I read that you are committed for making high quality products made with sustainable ingredients helping to protect both history and environment for future generation. So that is your concept from the very beginning. You want to make sure that you are only using sustainable products, free from harsh ingredients. I wanted to use ingredients that were beneficial for the skin and the body. It's kind of hard. You have to do a lot of research. But then when you find the ingredients you want to use, you have to get paperwork on everything. So we wanted to make sure it was cruelty-free, free from toxins. Like you have to make sure that the manufacturers that you're dealing with who make those things or supply the commodity are ethical. Uh, so you check their references. I wanted to know how long they were in business. I wanted paperwork on everything. But that just like was a lot of Google searching. You started this business when you were over 45 years old. I always wonder, how did you find this courage? I was 49 when I started. I was getting up there. But one of my best qualities, which is also my worst quality, is that I'm an optimist. And so I just think of something, I have an idea, and I think it's going to work. So I just do it. And I don't, I put the blinders on and I don't look back. Well, that's a bad quality too. Looking back your own journey, what would be the do and what would be the don'ts? You have to be an insatiable learner. You have to have an appetite to research and to learn things. It's no fun doing all the jobs that you don't want to do. And at first, it's probably 80% of the jobs. You're just grinding it out. You hate doing them, but you have to do them. So my number one piece of advice is make sure you can go the long road. And remember that you're taking everybody with you. You're taking your whole family with you. So if you're not committed, there's all kinds of repercussions if things fall apart financially or if you run out of steam. Especially in a product-based business, throughout this whole journey, I know you got it started so quickly and then you got a sale within the first four months and you scale up pretty quickly. What about the financing? Because all of the supplies require financing, capital uh, investment at the very beginning. How did you finance the, the business? We used retirement funds, which is not the greatest idea. <laughs> mm, okay. You and your husband. Yes. That's the very first thing we used and credit cards. Stage two, 
we uh, had a line of credit from the bank, and we still do. And then we did get some loans from the BDC, the Business Development Bank. I applied for a lot of grants. I think I've won maybe $110,000 in grants. I know in one of your story, you're saying, I want this business to be big. When did you start to realize that I can build a big business? This is going to be seven-figure business. Because I have learning disabilities and because I'm ADD, I'm not good with like a business plan. So I have a giant whiteboard in my office and I've, I've got two and I've had it since day one. And I wrote my business plan on the giant whiteboard and I drew pictures. And then I put sales targets in the US and Canada and different channels and different parts in different regions and how I was going to get there. And I had it all. And then I would take a picture of it uh, every time I would erase it and start over. And if I go back to those first pictures, I thought I was going to build a, a company that I was selling $100,000 or $150,000. Like, <laughs> okay. Then when did you start erasing that $100,000 and then change that to a million, $2 million? Definitely between 12 and 24 months. And it was like, okay, I think I'm going to be able to build a $750,000 company. And then it was like, okay, I think I can build a you know, $2 million company. What would be your lessons here to other entrepreneurs? For a long time, I was putting my head down. I had my blanders on and I was kind of pedaling as hard as I could. And when you're doing that and you're doing all the jobs, you can't see the forest through the trees. I would have said to myself, okay, there's a chance I'm going to build a $100,000 business. Maybe it'll be 500. Maybe it'll be a million. Maybe it'll be 10 million. Who knows? I don't know that answer, but I am going to build the infrastructure as if it's going to be a $10 million company. But the very first thing I'm going to pay attention to is the bottom line. If I can't make at least 10% profit, then I don't care about the top line number. Forget the top line number. Because what happens is you can be focusing on that and losing money. And you don't even know you're losing money. I love what you just said. Because you know what I always said? I said focusing only on revenue is like focusing on vanity metrics. The higher the revenue doesn't always mean higher profitability. It's, it's just not. No, I'd rather be a $2 million company hitting 15% at my bottom line than a $10 million com- dollar company losing 5%. <laughs> exactly. But people is just focusing on revenue a lot, especially at the very beginning. And that is something I am trying to change because every financial numbers, it's a story. It is. It is a financial storytelling. What revenue tells any business owner should be, my marketing works perfect. I have sales all the time. I sell my product. I reach my goals. But that's about it though. It doesn't tell the story about how profitable you are. All this infrastructure that you were just talking about, everything has to work together in order to bring that 10%, 15% bottom line. You know, the thing is that it's also about bringing your values to the business. And because at the end of the day, I believe it's not only about the bottom line, it's also how are you going to create the impact you want to use safe ingredients. 
You want to restore this part. You want to provide income to the local community. And then those has to line up. Like everything has to line up. And then people forget. I was very fortunate because I love books and podcasts so much. I was fortunate when I started on day one and I built my pricing model. I built it really sustainably. I knew if, if I couldn't make a profit, there was no point in being a business because I would go bankrupt. So in order to put the quality into the product that I wanted to put my name on, I knew my pricing had to support that. And I knew there would be unique challenges as I scaled it that were going to be very expensive. So if you don't have your pricing right, sometimes there's been products that I have developed that I've been in love with. I have a couple right now that I'd absolutely love to make, but I'm not making them as the pricing model doesn't support the goals to create a sustainable product that has all the features that I want it to. So it just don't, it, it won't work. The consumer won't pay the price and won't hold up in the supply chain price-wise. So we don't make it. Can you give me an example a product that you basically saying, you know what, I'm not going to do it. Like, what is the major issue over there? Well, I'll give you a good example. So I wrote, we have a collection of products called Nurses Rescue. Mm-hmm. And I am an award-winning writer. That's a whole different story. And I wrote a humorous book for nurses called Bedtime Stories for Tired-Ass Nurses. And it's professionally illustrated. It's beautifully done. It's a beautiful book. And I originally created it as a digital version as a lead magnet so people could download the free copy and then I could sell books and then we put that book in with our nurses rescue collection and it goes with it perfectly the cost to print it did not line up so we were selling it like crazy but we weren't we were making very narrow margins and it didn't hold up in the 3PL because it kept getting damaged so the book was a success but it was losing money. So there's no point in making it. We just continued it. One of the things that I always find with the people that came to me, when I look at their pricing, one of the key components that they always miss is about the overhead costs. They, they are very good, especially for product uh, business. They know their ingredients. They know what's going into the products. But they forget about all the other overhead costs, especially how much are you going to pay yourself? I'm assuming you are future proving your pricing. You basically have a vision to look to the future, understanding how do I want to structure my business? Uh, what are the distribution channels? What are all these ingredients? How do I want to create, what kind of company do I want to create? And then you work backwards is to get to your pricing. Exactly my strategy. I work backwards. And what people really don't realize is how expensive it is to deliver a product. And it's shocking. In fact, I've had two conversations with friends in the last two weeks, starting businesses. And I said, show me your pricing model. not going to work. Don't bother getting out of bed on this. Like, it's not going to work. This will not hold up. Oh, no, because you haven't calculated your time. You haven't calculated the, uh, the, the cost of getting it to the customer. And they said, yeah, but I'm doing this. I said, no, you're not doing the work. You're doing the work today. But if you're going to build a 
you're not going to be the one putting in a box. You're not going to be the one packing it and putting a label on it or storing it in a warehouse. So you haven't factored any of that in. You do not have a business at this pricing model. Go back to Exactly. I love, 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 love what you are saying. I think people get it wrong. When they do pricing, they think about, oh, I'm starting my business in a basement. I'm starting my business in my kitchen. They didn't have a future vision on where they want to be. I get it because sometimes it's, it's scary, but pricing is such a big component. And it's not because it's bringing your revenue is actually determine your profitability. Every single component in your pricing, that will tell you if you're going to be profitable or not. Like every single investment that you are making in your business, your debt, your salary, your marketing plan, your distribution channel, it has to go into your pricing. If not, forget it. Like that is like one of the best advice that you can give to your friends out there. Seriously, like I think it's going to save them in the long run. They may be making money. They think like, okay, I, I can make the sales. There is a revenue over there. But it it's not, they're going to build a business that not really a business that they want. You're going to get into trouble. And most expensive part of the business in a consumer products business is your user 3PL. I can't run a consumer products brand and be a warehouse manager. Those are two separate companies. I decided I am not a warehouse manager. So we use a 3PL, a third-party logistics, for anybody who's not sure what that means. So we contract a warehouse. They do all the picking, packing, and shipping. And let me tell you what, it is expensive. Whether it's one jar of hand cream or six jars of hand cream, it's about 18 bucks. And people are shocked to hear that. But you're, you've got racks of inventory you're paying for. You're paying for boxes. You're paying for packing material. You're paying every time somebody touches something. You're paying for receiving. So all of these things have to factor into the cost. And uh, people just don't know how expensive it is. Actually, I watched a video where you were talking about you had two warehouses at the very beginning of your journey because you scale up really fast. And then you were giving this trust to a company that is packaging your product in boxes, but it ended up your customer's complaint. What happened there? What happened was the, I, I picked a, a company that had been in business 80 years, but I failed to realize is that they were shipping things on pallets, pallets of protein powder, engines, t-shirts. They had no experience picking and each a, a hand cream and a bottle and a jar and putting it in a box. They were just piling everything in there like it was footballs. And they literally, they could have bankrupted our company. The very first thing is we were supposed to have the picking line ready when we shut off the, the other warehouse. They didn't even have anything unpacked. So for a month, products just sat there not even moving. So we had to cancel a bunch of orders. We lost customers. So that was, that was level one. Level two was the damages, just shipping products and damaging. And then they were supposed to be scanning the products and they weren't, they lied. They were doubling up everything that was going in the box. So for 20 lip balms, they were getting 40 <laughs> being charged for 20. So we had all 
this inventory for a long time going and we didn't know where it was going. We just lost a ton of money and damaged, stolen and misshipped items and, and customers losing customers. And we had to shut off our sales channels because shut off the sales channels and focus on the customers that we already had, we risked losing our reputation all across the board. Once you lose your reputation, as you know, 24 hours online, you lose it, you're done. You can't get it back. And so I made the decision to, to shut off all our sales channels and stop growth. And how did you survive during that time? Because I think it took you guys about 18 months. Yeah, we almost lost the company. We almost went bankrupt. And in what saved you? Sheer determination. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of sleepless nights, grinding it out. I was traumatized, but I'm like, I can't, I'm, I can't quit now. I have done all of this work. I can't quit. I have got to keep pushing. And I just, I sought out coaches. I read books. I did everything I could to keep the needle moving, basically. When did this happen? Was it 2018, 2019? 18. 2018. But at that time, your revenue was already up there. It was already seven figures. Yes, it was. I assume the profitability wasn't there then because of this whole situation. We, we started losing money like crazy. Once you build a machine, the machine keeps going. It costs your expenses to run the company. Right? So you start shutting off sales channels and growth. You're not making money because you're losing inventory like crazy. If I could change anything, I would have had hired a CFO on a part time. I wouldn't have been able to afford one for many hours, but I would have had somebody maybe just one or two hours a month, make sure I never went off the rails because a lot of those theft problems, we didn't know where that, we couldn't figure out where that was. And had we had somebody looking at it really closely all the time, we would have known. Our bookkeeper, who's not experienced in manufacturing, didn't have the book set up correctly. We thought we had X amount of inventory, but fact was it wasn't flowing to COGS properly. Mm. We didn't realize there was a problem until I had a coach and he's like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And then it started sort of piecing together. And that's where I should have had somebody from day one. What was the first order of business that the CFO helped you? Making sure everything in the back end was flowing where it should. So basically understanding the processes within your business and then how those piece together to show the financial result or ending up in the financial result. Yeah. What exactly that you gain from working with a part-time CFO? Every month we review the budget to actual. We go through every number. We find out where we went off track, where we're on track, making sure the cogs are where they're, they're supposed to be. and just making sure nothing gets out of control. And then we make decisions. So we make decisions about marketing, our marketing dollars, staffing. We make a lot of decisions based on those reports, right? So we every single month, we look at them. This was the best piece of advice I got. Stop thinking about the past. It's gone. Yeah. That's something. You can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. This is your numbers. These are where your numbers need to be. Make sure the numbers are there. If you make sure the numbers are there, you're going to save your company. 
And I think that is where a lot of business owner misunderstood. They're thinking, if I have a bookkeeper and I have a tax accountant, then I will be fine. The problem is that, like you just mentioned, bookkeeping is about recording the transaction. It's already happened. But if you want to scale your business, you want to grow, you need to look forward into the future. And that means you need to forecast. You need to plan what is your long-term plan and translating your strategy and your vision into financial numbers. The world just shut down in March. Everybody is in a panic. But if you have something in front of you that you've been working on and you've been thinking about it when your mind is in full clarity and you're not in a panic, you are able to see the bigger pictures and then you are able to take steps that are more proactive instead of just reactive. And I remember you told me in our discussion before, one of the first thing that you did is actually looking at your supply chain because you kind of have a feeling this pandemic, it's gonna have not only impact on your revenue, but also in your supply chain. The very first thing I thought when the pandemic hit, I thought, oh my God, hand sanitizer sales are out of control. That's going to soak up all the packaging. And I was right. So I went and bought six months worth of packaging so that we wouldn't run out. Because if we ran out, and that's exactly what happened. We had people beating down our doors trying to buy packaging off us. And I'm like, I'm not selling you anything. <laughs> So that was a really good move on my part. I could just see the connection there. We don't even make hand sanitizer, but I knew that they'd be buying every piece of packaging that you could put it in. But I think this is go also going back. If you haven't taken care and looking at your finances, you wouldn't have any available cash to basically take the necessary action. But because you have been working with a CFO, I am almost certain that you probably go back to the CFO and then you are able to look at how much cash that you have available to support you for the next few months and then in order for you to plan in advance. Yes. And the other thing is they built me a calculator on an Excel file. If I, if I want to say spend $10,000 on an ad for something or marketing, digital marketing, lastly, just go put it in a calculator and you tell me. Okay. And I put it in the calculator, like in this spreadsheet, and it tells me if I have that in my budget or not. I just have to drop the number in and it'll show me what my profit's going to be that month if I spend that money and what my cash position. It just, it's all in this little calculator. A lot of entrepreneurs think that I have to follow my gut. I have to follow my instinct. So, how do you really punch in a number in a calculator and then following your instinct at the same time? Did you ever run into that situation, Leslie? Well, I used to run the company on my gut and I stopped doing that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I only use the calculator now. So um, if I want to hire somebody, put it in the calculator. Does it work? Mm, no, I better figure out a way, another way to make things stretch a little bit more. How is your business today? We're up 30% since the pandemic hit. So sales are going well. The supply chain got very expensive in terms of shipping costs went up. Repail costs went up, and packaging prices went up, um, ingredient costs went up. So what we did was we just tweaked pricing where we could. We increased our shipping rate. We just been tweak, tweak, tweak it, and we watch it like a hawk. 
And how is your customers reacted though to the change in price? Did they even notice? Did they even feel it? Like they did not notice because everything's got more expensive. So they're just kind of used to it. What about the retail side of it? What about the wholesale side of it? Did it get shut down because all the retail business are basically like shutting down? 85% of our business is business to business. And actually what happened was the stores that did not adapt went out of business. And the ones that did adapt really started to thrive. They created all kinds of online models, a combination of Facebooks, uh, sales, live sales, uh, uh, pickups gift boxes, um, and those customers have strengthened. So we lost some and we won some. But I, I should point out, because we position our company that most of the purchases on the business side are, are credit card, they have to pay in advance. Mm-hmm. One account receivable. Smart. And a lot of people are missing that point. It can save a lot of business, actually, just by looking at the cash conversion cycle, but not many. What is the last advice that you have for those later in age thinking about entrepreneurship journey? Any last advice? I think when you are going to, you come up with an idea and you think it's a brilliant idea. When you vet the idea, do not ask your family or your friends or anyone, your neighbors, how do you like this? What do you think of this? This is not the right question. People don't want to hurt your feelings. The best question to ask is, hey, I want you to tell me every single thing that's wrong with this. Mm. And then shut up. (laughs) (laughs) People, when you invite them, you give them permission to be critical, they're gonna start, they're gonna, they're gonna be, they're gonna feel safe and they're gonna tell you the truth. And then when you hear it, it's hard to hear things about your baby, you take note, you write it down. And then you go ask more people, are they saying the same things? If you ask 10 people and they're saying exactly the same thing, you have a problem. Hmm. But when you ask family and friends, how do you like this? And they go, oh, that's so cute. Or yeah, sure, I would buy that. Go put it on a shelf somewhere. Go to a local store and ask if you can put it on the shelf and put it on consignment, your, your prototypes. If it doesn't speak from the shelf, itself if it doesn't leave by itself it's probably not a good idea lastly where can people find you you can find us at waltonwoodfarm.com waltonwoodfarm.com or at waltonwoodfarm on instagram and facebook thank you so much for being here thank you so much for having me it's been a delight and that's bring us to the end of another show Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women entrepreneurs. If you want to create a proactive financial plan and process for your business so you are ready to weather the financial storm over the next few months, let's chat and see what's possible for you. Book in a time to speak with me at christinashahli.com forward slash let's chat.